Hello and welcome everybody to this week's edition of Sustainability Now with me, Justin Mogg, here on your community radio station. We are Forward Radio WFMPLP Louisville, broadcasting from downtown at 4th and Broadway here at 106.5 FM in the historic Hayburn building. And we live stream to the world at forwardradio.org. You can listen to us from Madagascar. And the reason I say that is I have two friends in the virtual studio with me today who served as Peace Corps volunteers in Madagascar. And we're wrapping up our series of interviews with Peace Corps volunteers who served and are from Kentucky or have Kentucky connections today with some of our most recent volunteers who just got back to the country in March because of the COVID-19 evacuation that shut down Peace around the world. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to learn about a fascinating island nation called Madagascar, which I have always dreamed about someday visiting. And we're going to talk about Peace Corps service again today on the show with me, Justin Mogg. I was a Peace Corps volunteer in Paraguay from 2005 to 2008. And then I moved to Louisville after that. And now in this virtual <laughs> studio with me are Hannah Gray and Josie Ebelhair, who served in Madagascar. Hannah, you served right uh, from 2019. And the, it sounds like your, your service got delayed at the front end and cut off short at the back end. You want to talk about that? What happened to you? Yeah. So we were supposed to originally leave in March of 2019 and then the government got shut down in January. So we got delayed for about a month. Don't you hate that when the Peace Corps tells you to like cool your jets and you're all packed and ready to go? (laughs) Quit my job, was ready, just like chilled for about a month. Oh yeah. Oh man. That's hard. That is hard. Uh, We didn't get delayed, but we did go down our group of 40 volunteers who went down for in-country training together. We had this staging. You have a few days of staging, Mm -hmm. and it was in Miami in August of 2005. (laughs) This is just after Katrina hit. Uh, uh, and so uh yeah things were a little crazy but uh we we did get down on time but uh, yeah i mean there were people who served with us who like had sold their house right and you do you do give up a lot of things to go serve in the peace corps of course but you know we get so much back right (laughs) (laughs) so hannah and josie both grew up around here hannah grew up in jaytown and josie grew up in charlestown indiana uh now josie you served as an english teacher in madagascar but only for three months. What happened to yeah. you? Yeah, we. I left for Madagascar a year ago in the beginning of September and everything seemed perfectly normal. Uh, <laughs> and now I'm back home. And then we were evacuated in March. <laughs> Wow. Oh my gosh. So, I mean, we're going to talk about the COVID evacuation, but I guess we should put that at the tail end of your story. Tell us about yourselves. Like what drew you to Peace Corps service in the first place? For me, it was my high school teachers at Mercy Academy. Two of them were returned Peace Corps volunteers and my senior year was a service year, basically. And my focus was women in Africa. And that's what got me interested in it. And just talking to my teachers about it and all the amazing things they saw, they did, what they went through. It it looked very nice. And I really wanted to do that. One of them served in Dominican Republic and one of them served in Haiti, I feel like. Oh, okay. It actually got evacuated too. It happens. Yeah. Um, people, Parallel. 
people get evacuated from their own personal medical reasons or whole countries get evacuated because of political things that go on. Like when I was in Paraguay, we the way we put it as volunteers were we, we were adopting the refugees from Bolivia because of political instability in Bolivia. And so these mid-service volunteers were getting replaced in Paraguayan villages. And I could just imagine like that here they were like learning Quechua or, you know, one of the Bolivian <laughs> indigenous languages and getting really comfortable with that. And suddenly they're thrown into, okay, now you got to speak Guarani <laughs> and you got to drink mate with us. And, you know, there's so much to learn. Wow. So you got introduced to it. What about you, Josie? How did you decide? My aunt served in the Peace Corps in Guatemala in like the early 90s. And she has always just been like a personal hero of mine. She's like a really cool lady. She's an ER nurse and like has traveled all over the country. And like she did Doctors Without Borders. And I just have always wanted to be just like her. And so I wanted to do the Peace Corps French in high school so I could serve in like Peace Corps Africa and be a good candidate for that. Um, And then I kind of moved away from it for a while in college and it didn't really seem like something I wanted to do. And then after college, I got more excited about it and applied and ended up in Madagascar. Huh. Now, just to be clear, you two didn't know each other before Madagascar. (laughs) No, (laughs) we met in Ethiopia after evacuation. It was the weirdest thing ever. (laughs) And you're like, what? You're from Louisville too? (laughs) Weirdest thing. College, like probably have like very, a lot of mutual friends and met in Ethiopia. (laughs) There were actually five people that went to University of Louisville in Madagascar and we had no connections. We just like knew we existed in the country together. Wow. None of us were near each other. And (laughs) so that suggests that there's quite a few volunteers in Madagascar. Yes. There are about, I think, 140 yeah. in country total. Wow. And it's yeah. a bigger country than we think, right? Uh, it's an <laughs> island nation, but it's not small. Tell tell us a little bit about what Madagascar is like. I think it's about the size of California. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. yeah. So it's very big. Wow. Uh, and I believe it holds about 5% of the world's biodiversity. Unbelievable. So it's very diverse in like the different parts of the country. Like they all look very mm-hmm. oh, different. Yeah. It feels like you're just in a completely different world and all you do is go like eight hours north. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so that's because of yeah. topography? Like there's mountains or what? There's all kinds of different geography. There was rainforests, beaches, deserts, um, mountains, um, there's places where it's extremely cold and our regions were extremely hot, but yeah, there's every types of weather. I would say like two different seasons, hot and not hot. Yeah. <laughs> not as hot as it. Like, and when they say be. not hot, they mean like 75. Yeah. Yeah. It's still right. like, you're still going to sweat, but you're not like sweating while you sleep. So. But it's, it's not sweat. on the equator. This is uh, further yeah. south, right? It's actually on like tropics. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it's in the Indian Ocean. How did the how did the island get settled? Was it people who came over from the African continent or the Indian subcontinent or how did who are the people there? So there are no indigenous people in Madagascar um, and they have their people from Indonesia who came down and they also have southern African people who came over and then Arab tribes as well. So the island itself is incredibly diverse in its people. One of the people in my um, town told me that like there were really small people who lived in Madagascar and then the Arab people came and then they made big people together, (laughs) (laughs) which is very funny because I think the biggest person I saw was like five, 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 yeah, five, six, maybe. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, wow. So it's one of these places where I could feel like a giant. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. That's fun. Interesting. Well, that reminds me of, of, 
I lived nine months in, in the Philippines, in the southern Philippines, during grad school as a Fulbright scholar. And that's a place, too, that was a real melting pot. And I think a lot of island nations end up that way, where people migrate from a variety of different cultures and bring their religions, especially the southern Philippines is sort of like this mixing of the Muslims with the Christians. And I, I think it makes for a very fascinating culture. But there's also conflict that, that comes up when that happens. Is there a history of conflict in Madagascar? Is it a pretty peaceful place? It is a peaceful place, in my opinion, now. But there was history of, yeah. like, there was a coup in 2005. And there is, like, religious conflict, I guess. But not violence. Yeah. There's just, like, tension, I guess. I would say the biggest separation that I noticed was between different regions and mm -hmm. their ability to get resources. Like, the Marina people are, like, the dominant and, um, like, privileged race or, like, ethnic group. Yeah. Yeah. And they lived in the center in like they had the capital city and they're very their culture is like very dominant. And if you looked online, like what does a, Mal like a Malagasy person look like? They, that's what they would look like. But then as you get to the different edges, they people start to like change and the roads get worse and access oh, yeah. to like food and water and medicine gets harder. Yeah. Huh. And that's where we lived. She lived in the very tip top, like very north. Mm -hmm. And I lived at like the extremely deep south. So I was like the su most southern volunteer. And I believe you were like the most. I was one of the yeah. most northern mm -hmm. Oh, wow. So there's a lot of diversity in the place. Is it a place that tourists come? Is it a place you will just sort of run into white people randomly? In different spots, yes. Like on the touristy coasts, mm -hmm. I would say. Yeah, like I live near my banking town where I got, went and got money and did all my banking town things uh -huh. was a tourist city. So I would see a lot of vizas is what they're called is like tourists. And then did you all get confused for that? Yes. Every day, every day. <laughs> yeah. they, were, um, they were colonized by the French for a long time. Yeah. And so people just assume that you're French. So I, anywhere I went, it was just, and I'm sure you do. Oh, yeah. bo bonjour, Rosal. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, hello, white person. Yeah. Hey. <laughs> now, did you learn French? Is it is spoken widely or you were working in Malagasy or what? Yeah, yeah, I was working in Malagasy. The banks, though, time, money, and what, when you're in the capital, that's all in French. Mm -hmm. So you did have to learn numbers and like phone numbers were given in French. So you learned an extent enough to be able to still speak and understand. But yeah, it was very hard to yeah. learn French. Not my favorite. Yeah, my host mom was a French teacher, which is really helpful with language because a lot of nouns are like we have a lot of cognates between English and French. So we could like figure stuff out a little bit. Yeah. But then mostly we spoke Malagasy and like the kids didn't really speak French at all. Mm -hmm. Huh. Well, that part about being mistaken for a tourist, I think that must have been really hard. <laughs> I was <laughs> eternally grateful my three years in Paraguay that this is a place that nobody comes. <laughs> There's nobody who wants to go visit Paraguay. So nobody ever saw us and was like, ah, just another tourist or, or saw us as a potential way to make money, right? The white people who were in the country were usually there for some sort of NGO, like doing some sort of positive work for the country. There were a few Mennonites who had settled there but so it was either you either live here or you're here doing good work so it was a lot easier to navigate all of that but i been to other places where you know costa rica and things like that where tourists come and i could just imagine what it's like for you all to live there so and and you were almost there long enough to hardly like settle in you know? <laughs> so so that's got to be rough it wasn't really exciting i remember the first time in my banking town that someone called me a visa and then someone else was like hey no that's not she's our person <laughs> She awesome. lives. Our, 
community member. Yeah. And that felt so good. <laughs> I will say after you spoke the language, like oh, if yeah. somebody like thought you were a Vaza, they said like, hey, Vaza, and then you started speaking Malagasy, they would be like, oh, okay, never mind. You're not a Vaza. <laughs> like, you got it. <laughs> you don't have any money anymore. Yeah. <laughs> you live here. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, an easy way in. Well, what else is special about Madagascar that you want to share? What are the people like? People are amazing. The, the hospitality that I felt there was just unprecedented. I've never felt everyone just like gave you what they had. Like right? even, even if they had like a plate of rice, they would split it with you. You know, they would just be so willing to help you in any way they could. It was just amazing. Yeah, I just remember feeling so uncomfortable with the amount of almost aggressive generosity. Yeah. And there was no sense of like property. I remember walking through, like there was always like the main road and then there were like houses to the side and the houses would like go deeper off the road. And I would follow kids back there. And then we would be like walking through what I would assume would be someone's yard. Mm -hmm. And like, all I could hear was my mom in the back of my head being like, don't walk in people's yards. No. And it, but it's like, there's just no sense of like yeah. ownership over the land. It's that just too, like, yeah. everyone has it and you just have a house here and you live here. Yeah. Me and my friends actually got lost one time, just like in our banking town. Mm -hmm. And we like walked into somebody's backyard and we were like, oh my gosh, I am so, we are so sorry. Like we will get out of here immediately. And they were just like, oh, come on, Drews. Like you can come and eat with us. Like oh, nice. they didn't know us but everybody's very generous with everything. Wow. Very nice. And sometimes I felt like people would assume that I had that same level of generosity, which I really wanted to. Yeah. 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 And like, I would be roasting peanuts and my host dad would always come over and just like grab a handful and be like, thanks. And then right. walk away. <laughs> and he was like, well, if he had asked, of course I would have said yes. Right. And I'm like, why did he even have to ask? He has done so much for me, way right. more than a handful of peanuts is worth. Right. Oh, that's funny. I'm speaking today with two Peace Corps volunteers who are our most recent volunteers. They were just evacuated out of Madagascar at the start of the COVID-19 pandemic in March. Uh, Hannah Gray and Josie Ebelhair, who uh, grew up around here too, so they are native to our region and were just getting settled into Madagascar when they er were evacuated. Well, I'm curious to learn more about that generosity. Does it translate to a more communal living in general? Like, you said there's like no concept of private property. Is that really true in terms of the way that like land and actual property does get managed do they share tools and things like that more than you would see around here i think so yeah especially like i was in the agriculture sector so everybody would offer their spades or their like on gaudi is what it's called for like a shovel everyone offered it to me because they knew i was working in that area and if you're a part of the community you're a part of the community everyone in the community was very welcoming and willing to give me what they had to wow. do the work that i was like meant to do there Wow. The only the only time I saw things really divided were in like the rice patties. I'd never understood whose was who, but I was told that like some belonged to some people and some belonged to other people. And you could see they were broken off into sections, but they all seemed to be about like the same size. Yeah. And would produce about the same amount of rice. See, I lived in a desert, so I didn't even, there were, rice would not grow there. It was basically <laughs> just beans, and we tried to grow vegetables and trees, and that's about it. Does that mean but, there was more animals in, in the deserty part? There were animals, but I always said this, all the animals and plants were created to hurt you in some way. They were spiny, <laughs> or like they had, there, there's a thing called a chambu, where it's basically like a long centipede, but with uh, pincers. pincers at the front. So yes, there were animals, but you didn't really want to see a lot of animals. <laughs> okay, that's interesting too. But I was thinking about like domesticated animals, like were they sheep or oh. goats or something like that? Oh yeah, 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 definitely. Cattle, so cows, but zebus, uh, sheep, chickens, dogs and cats. Yeah, all over the place. Yeah. yeah. And are those managed communally or is that like my goat? My Oh yeah, that was 
definitely like my goat okay. is my goat. My my Zabu is my Zabu. It gets passed down to. It's a very familial thing though. So when you get older, you are supposed to have a hundred heads of cattle. Like oh. that's where your money goes. Oh. And it's not that way in the North, Josie. In the, I mean, in the North, they all had animals. And I don't know that I ever asked about how it was passed down. But like my family had meat chickens, which was very rare in that area. And so like those were definitely like a cage and they ordered them from the capital Mm -hmm. and raised them. But then mostly the chickens just ran around and the the cows were brought home at night. And we didn't have any um, pigs are like taboo because they practice Islam in the North. Yeah. Well, did that living in that communal, more communal space make you dream of a different future for our country? Or was it just like, this would never work at home? <laughs> it is, I, I think it is the thing I miss the absolute most yeah. about there. I just feel like here, everyone seems to be afraid of each other. Yeah. Um, and there's no, like, I can't just like walk up to people hanging out on their porch and like start a conversation and chat for hours. Oh, yeah. Like, no, and it's like there's no not you don't like know every person on the street you don't like know everyone they don't know you and it, yeah it's very different yeah yeah for me the pace of time was the thing i missed the most yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, it just really messes with your mind to be in a place that's so obsessed about the clock and efficient use of time i think we lose a lot i mean we gain some things obviously but we also lose a lot when we do that but yeah there's things about rural life in paraguay too that are very communal as well so i miss those things too. (laughs) Well, uh, let's talk a little bit about your roles as volunteers. Uh, You were sort of assigned different tasks, right? So Josie, you were just starting to teach English. Is that right? Yeah, I was an English teacher at the CAJ, which is the equivalent of our like middle school. It's like sixth, seventh, eighth, and ninth grade. Oh. And it was one of the only, they had like an elementary school and a middle school in my town. So I was teaching like the oldest kids. And so my, I basically taught each grade three hours a week. So I was teaching like 12 hours a week. Um, which at first seemed like a very small amount of time. Yeah. And then I realized how much of my time would go to like survival. Yep. <laughs> yep. And it was like one class for each grade. I had a really, the school only had a hundred kids in it. It was very, very small. And was this the kid's first exposure to English? Yes, for many of them. So they had the volunteer before me. So some of them had had English prior, but like in the sixth grade class, I was their first. Unless they failed and had to retake the sixth grade class, I was the first one that like the first English they had. Yeah. And is is it a place where there's like media in English or what are they going to do with that skill, you think? Well, honestly, I don't think the people in my town are really going to use English. Like most of them aren't even going to finish middle school. But I think it's cool for them to see new teaching environments. And English is part of their national curriculum. So they do have to have an English teacher. Uh-huh. You know, and if a school can get a free English teacher that they don't have to pay, then they can use that money to get other teachers to like do make improvements on the school. Then like I can bring in grants through Peace Corps. And I think while maybe the English part is not critical to their like existence, I think it, it does bring more opportunity to the town. Yeah. Well, and is there tourism in in that region? Like maybe that could be part of it. There is in um, Nuzi Bay, which is like an island in the north. A lot of French tourists go there. But where I was, there weren't really tourists. It was so small and out of the... Most people had never even heard of my town, like in my banking town. Yeah. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) 
And I'm sure if you'd stayed your full two years or more, you would have started doing all kinds of things besides just teaching English, right? Yeah. That's what I found as a volunteer. Like you get your official role. Like I was a crop extension volunteer, but man, I was just a problem solver every day. Like it was a new problem, like all these different things, whether it's health or sanitation or gardening or environmental education or community radio or all kinds of different stuff. Hannah, you got a little further down that road, right? Like you were an agriculture volunteer, but talk a little bit about what you did. So I originally am an agriculture extension volunteer. So my primary job was to help build a tree nursery. So it's called Pepiniere. And our goal was to take little tiny planters, start the trees, and then kind of pass them out to rural areas in order for them to grow those trees. Because yeah. the trees that we were growing were moringa trees. So they oh, could yeah. produce oil, they could produce like nuts for food. And then you could sell those seeds back to different like NGOs that were in the South for money, or you could produce oil for yourself and sell that. So it was just like kind of like different ways to get money. But then I also worked with CRS, which is Catholic Relief Services. Oh yeah. And I taught different like agriculture classes, like weekly with them. So they were doing it and I was just kind of tagging along and just kind of being, I don't know, like a little organizer, I guess. Like I was just tagging along with them, but yeah, we, they would pass out seeds to rural areas too, um, because they didn't have access to seeds or to go into the town and get seeds. And then they would teach about like pest management and how to grow these things and when to grow these things. And I also kind of like delved into health issues because there was no health volunteer down there. Uh So I tried to like work with the hospital and be like, I tried to set up presentations that was in the middle of doing that when we got evacuated, but presentations for different diseases that could be caused by drinking polluted water and all that stuff. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned the Moringa tree. That's something we were promoting in our agroforestry pieces uh, in Paraguay too. Uh, It's a a nitrogen-fixing legume, right? It it, uh, pulls nitrogen out of the atmosphere and fixes that in the soil, so it's a way to improve soil fertility. How are you encouraging people to plant it, like in a fence row or what? Um, Yeah, so in a row, but also just we would kind of go to, there was, it was called Fukutani's, which is like different neighborhoods within our town. Uh So we would go to each Fukutani and be like, where is the best area for this? And kind of talk to the owner of that land and be like, if we give these to you, will like you plant them for us? And just kind of like, we could help you out. It was just kind of find the best area each in each Fukutani. And were they receptive to that idea? Was tree planting something people were into? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Especially in the South, because it was so desertive. Like it was such a desert that they just liked the idea for shade, for future yeah. shade. Like, yeah. they, like <laughs> we would talk about money and like the oil that they could get. And they were just like, no, we're good. We just want the tree. Like, <laughs> But yeah, they were popping up all over because the previous volunteer that I replaced had done the same thing. So He had also been promoting it two years prior. So it wasn't like a foreign concept, though. It was very helpful for me. (laughs) Oh, that's great. Yeah, we we followed up a volunteer on our site, too, who had done some tree planting. And that was one of the most rewarding things was to be there long enough to see the fruits of these sort of long term, like a tree. You're not just going to get a benefit out of it next year. Like even in a semi-tropical environment, it takes a little time. But we were able to see that growth and the impact of these tree plantings that had happened just, you know, 
a year before we got there. And then we continued to promote it too and work on things like grafting for, for citrus fruit and things like that. And there were so many different ways you could integrate trees into the farm that that was always a, a source of something to talk about. And but yeah, you're right. The shade was like primo. <laughs> Everybody loved the shade because there's a lot of hanging out. And, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And the place, nobody has air conditioning. It's awkward to go into people's small homes. You know, the place to hang out is the shade in the patio. Yeah. So they really, really value that. But then, yeah, there's all kinds of other uses. You can feed animals and right, yeah. things like that. The, the challenge was always actually to keep the animals from eating the young trees. Did you have that yeah. problem? Yes, absolutely. Like we actually had one guy. So where we did our pepinier, it was basically like, I would say a mile and a half long and not that wide. We had a guy that slept there and protected it. From oh the my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Sleeping yeah. in the nursery. And he throw rocks at chickens or like get the zaboos out. And yeah, that was his full time <laughs> job. That's where his, where his house was. <laughs> so yeah. And what about watering them? I can imagine in a desert environment, that must have been a challenge. It was. And that the previous volunteer again helped me out with that. He set up the pepinier in the perfect spot right next to the river. So we would have kids and we would pay them a very minuscule amount of money, a hundred ariari per bidon of water and just water them daily. Uh-huh. And that was pretty well set up. It was very easy to find people that could do that. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, while, while we're on the topic of water, you did some other work on water conservation, right? You want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. I was just trying to find a way because not everybody can live near the water or like have a pepinier near the water. So that was another right. thing that I was trying to do is trying to figure out how to conserve rainwater in order for people that are further away from the river to water their plants. And one of the ways we did that was roof catchment systems. Or nice. whatever it's called. Yeah. Yeah. So that was in the works, oh, <laughs> but uh, right. more so in the banking town that I was in. I think they're called Wash. That's what they're working on right now is catchment systems on the high school roofs. Oh, nice. Yeah. And that's for like irrigation, not for drinking or both? No, just for irrigation. And you can um, also filter it. Well, and then people had needs for washing and things like that, too, yeah. I'm sure. And I can just imagine in a dry place, it was hard enough in a wet place like Paraguay where people had to dig their own wells and pull it up bucket by bucket right. out of the ground, you know. But yeah, there, you certainly learn to think about water in a completely different way in an environment like that. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> My guests today here on Sustainability Now are two recently evacuated uh, Peace Corps volunteers who were serving in Madagascar. Hannah Gray went down in April of 2019, and Josie Ebelhair went down. When did you go down? September 2019. In September. Okay. And then they both got evacuated in March of this year. Let's talk about what that process was like. (laughs) First of all, were you getting news about this pandemic before March, or, or were you so isolated you didn't even know? We would get daily emails like everything's okay everything's great and then all of a sudden it was not great (laughs) (laughs) yeah i only i could get wi-fi connection probably like once a week or so and like i would try to look at the news but often it was just like so overwhelming because things move so quickly and happen so quickly and i just sort of i mean corona was happening in china and i you know i don't want to be like a jerk but i was mostly focused on like u.s news and like seeing how louisville's doing and like it was more worried about that than like international news and it just like didn't really cross my mind until we were evacuated that it was like a big deal yeah so how quickly did it all go down it was like four days yeah so we got the email at 5 a.m on monday 
and we were gone by Thursday, I think. Wow. Thursday, Thursday, Thursday at midnight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because the borders shut, like the border airplane shut down at midnight and we flew out at 10 p.m. <laughs> we were very close to not leaving. <laughs> oh my gosh. So so the Madagascar government was responding, not just Peace Corps. Yes. Yeah. Well, yes. they were about to shut all the borders down. So they were saying mm-hmm. people have to get back to Madagascar now or you cannot come right. back. So they were also saying you have to get out or you can't leave. Right. Wow. And had any cases been identified in Madagascar? Not until they closed the borders. But after they closed the borders, then they started kind of opening up about, yes, we do have some cases. Yeah. Which it's like, were those cases brought in from people returning or was it like already there? Let's get all the people out and then we'll admit that maybe they were here. Right. (laughs) Oh my gosh. And how do you get ready to leave a country in just four days? I mean, sometimes it can take a day just to travel uh, to the, to the capital or how did this, how did this work for you guys? There was a lot of beer involved. Crying, <laughs> um, and we're both we were both fly sites, so we actually had to fly from our banking towns really? to the capital. So I was a twelve-hour bus and a flight, and I was like three days. Well, it would have been three days by bus, so that's why we had to fly. Right. So I was like an eight-hour bus ride and then a flight. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's really remote. Wow. <laughs> I actually got a ride with an ambulance. It was like the most weirdest thing ever. I just like flagged him down, and I was like. You're not by chance going to Fort Pitt, are you? And then just told me to hop in. Really? <laughs> yeah. Oh and I started out when we found out we were having our VAC meeting, which is like a regional, um, rep, like our region got together to meet about like issues we wanted to bring forward to Peace Corps Madagascar. And so I was in the city where I would be flying out of, but I had to like get back to my site. So it was like a day's travel to get there. Ah! go home also like no buses one bus goes to my site and they go at 7 a.m and they come back at noon i so i had it was very limited in my options and i had to like ride also like ride with just random people and get back and then i had like a day at site and then i had to get back and like the bus broke down halfway and like we had to get on a new bus and then like finally got there and we were chartered out on private jets yeah that was amazing (laughs) (laughs) they wanted us to get out yeah like like, very cool 70s like five-seater planes they put like red carpet it was amazing we were all like sweaty and disgusting on this red carpet Yeah, I've been on some of those strange flights. Yes, yeah. it's the only way out. Wow. So you must not have even had enough time to say goodbye to everybody in your host no. communities or your fellow no. volunteers. Yeah, it was crazy. Wow. Yeah, I remember I got there and like explained to my host what was happening. And he I was like, I would like to go tell the student. So he like took me to the school. And I just remember seeing my host mom and my little host sister, who I was very close with my host sister. She's the only one I could, we have, we're at the same like level of language skills so we could talk to each other really well. <laughs> and just when he was like, cause they called me Josephine and they were like, Josephine is leaving. And I just like lost it. Just like seeing my little sister's face drop. It just like broke me. Yeah. And then not having the ability to like, truly express my like gratitude in the language is really oh, frustrating. Yeah. And I was just crying and talking in English and hoping that they would get the feeling. Yeah. Wow. That's traumatic. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Have you been able to keep up with them since? Are you able to communicate at all? Somewhat through Facebook. Yeah. yeah. Facebook. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. They're on Facebook. That's a communication over there. It's just a Facebook Messenger. So sometimes we can like Facebook video chat, I guess. Mm-hmm. And that's the closest thing to like FaceTime. But it's not great Wi-Fi. It's not great yeah. cellular. 
my husband always calls me when he's at the market and I'm like, it's already hard enough for me to speak to you. And now there's just like yelling and like chickens in the yeah. background. Like this yep. is not, not a great time. Yeah. Yep. I've had some of those conversations on the phone. It's like, no, this isn't working really well. Wow. So how has Madagascar fared in, in the times of COVID? Where I lived, because the transportation wasn't great anyway, it's hard for people to come into that town and out of that town. So I think my town is doing great because of the lack of foreigners coming in. Yeah. But as a country, I don't think it's doing well. I mean, there's also so many other issues. There's like <laughs> lack of water, yeah. lack of clean water, starvation. Well, it's impossible to stay in your home. Like they're just, right. that yeah. just can't happen. Like you can't like order Instacart. You don't right. have refrigeration. <laughs> like you have to go outside every and day. buy food every day. Or water. Like, yeah, it's yeah. pretty impossible. Yeah. And then people live so close together. It's large families and tiny homes. And like, you know, no one really wants to sit inside with like eight people when right. it's a million degrees outside. Yeah. Yeah. Physical distancing. What? Uh, yeah. yeah. And it's a very touchy culture. Yeah. Like uh-huh. when you kiss kiss i was sick one time i had like a fever and they just brought me this like hot citrus tea and then my grandmother came and just massaged me and and it was like i just wanted to be left alone to be like (laughs) gross and tired and she was just like no i have to like heal you oh yeah i can imagine that in a touchy culture like that all these highly communicable diseases just it's impossible to to navigate that's Oh, that's scary to think about. And I'm sure if it's a it's a nation that relies a lot on tourism, that their economy must be really hit hard too. That's the another thing. Like I felt so horrible about leaving at the exact time when they needed NGOs yeah. and peace for the most. Like that was the hardest part about that was I could have done so much. I don't know. I just felt like I could have stayed and obviously everyone had to be evacuated but that was the time when those countries needed help the most yeah so in hindsight you don't regret this decision to get out but at the time you must have been feeling fairly conflicted yes yeah i was very upset a lot of like just a lot of feelings like there was you know there was a part of me that was like a little relieved because like it was hard to live there so part of me was like okay well now i get to go back home i get to go sit at a coffee shop and talk to my parents like okay we can look on the bright side but then i was just so furious that like like my language was just starting to get like okay my i was building actual relationships with people like making real friends i started working on projects and just to have that ripped away like i i just wish that i had been able to make the decision Mm -hmm. rather than just have it just made for me such a big decision too Yeah. yeah Absolutely. And I'm sure at the time, too, there was a lot of uncertainty about, will we get to come back? Will this just be They made it sound like we were going to be... Literally, they made it sound like, don't worry, you'll be back in three months. Really? Back this year. Like, leave your stuff. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Leave your stuff. Yeah. I've left so much stuff there. Uh, Oh, my gosh. (laughs) So much stuff. (laughs) Leave your stuff. Wow. Only pack the essentials that you need for the United States. I packed like clothes, not like things. Mm -hmm. And they made it sound like we would be back at site. But obviously now we know like reinstalling into that same country is probably impossible. And they sent out emails to all the countries and it was talking about how like you have to be within like a certain distance of the capital mm-hmm. and like yeah. Madagascar won't even begin to install until um, September, 2021. Yeah. And so it's like, we, neither of us would be able to go back to our sites. Right. We back yeah. We're so far from the capital. And I'm assuming they're only doing education. I'm, I'm, I'm yeah. assuming they're not going to like go in depth with like a broad volunteer base. Yeah. Wow. No, I hadn't yeah. seen that. That's a, that's an interesting update. So Peace Corps continues to even accept applications and, yeah. and yeah. trying to make plans 
sense for post-pandemic what's going to happen, but it sounds yeah. like it'll be a lot more limited possibilities. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah. And they talked a lot about how they have like, they'll have safety plans and like evacuation plans, like medical procedures will be really serious. Like travel will be even more restricted and like social gatherings of volunteers will be restricted in some ways. And just would be a very, very different Peace Corps experience. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So what <laughs> yeah. do you think? Would Would you want to go back in a year? Not in a year. Um, <laughs> maybe in like five years. Looking for like a, you know, or like a midlife crisis kind of thing. Right. Um, and probably for me, I wouldn't want to go back to Madagascar just because like, I feel like I would have such expectations for it to be the same and it would be so different. Right. And I would, I don't know, I just would kind of want to like start the whole experience over again and just like start new somewhere. Huh. To me, I fell in love with Madagascar, but I would not ever be a Peace Corps volunteer again. I would love to work with another NGO, CR or like wash or yeah i loved the job that i was doing and i love madagascar but probably not with peace corps we'll talk a little bit more about that i mean what what was it about the peace corps that you wouldn't want to do again i didn't really like the way they went about like medical issues Uh or sexual harassment Uh or trainings or lack of diversity or racism within the peace corps or not disclosing how serious racism towards volunteers could be and and they kind of just like shoved it under the rug. Don't talk about it. Don't think about it. If it happens to you, you're fine. What was the word they used? Integrate, adapt, be flexible. Mm-hmm. They were just very... It would always just, every time anyone I heard, I mean, I personally didn't really have any direct issues with Peace Corps, but I, I think maybe this is similar. Like people, it was just, they would just throw buzzwords at you. Yeah, yeah. If you came to complain. It was just like, well, it's part of the, it's part of the experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> Pick yourself up yeah. by your bootstraps. And it's like, okay, well, I, people are threatening me. Right. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I loved the volunteers. I loved the teachers that I met through Peace Corps, like the people that were Malagasy that taught me language, the best people I've ever met. But um, yeah, it was a good learning experience. Definitely not all easy and definitely not perfect, uh, but something to consider when the Peace Corps begins sending volunteers back out into the field. You can learn more at peacecorps.gov as an incredible history of sending folks from the U.S. to all over the world to do interesting work. And so, yeah, check it out. It's been a delight learning about you all's experiences, and I'm Geez, I just want to express my sympathies for getting ripped out of your sights with four days notice. That's just crazy. I can't imagine. (laughs) But thank you for your service to the nation and to Madagascar. And thank you for joining me today on Forward Radio. It was a lot of fun, you guys. Thank you. Thank you so much. If you ever, if anyone ever goes to Madagascar, highly recommend. Yes. Very cheap to travel. The people are really nice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I need to get there someday. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, thank you so much. Uh, It's been great talking to you and it's been great bringing our listeners this series of interviews with Peace Corps volunteers from Kentucky. Stay tuned, everyone. Coming up in just a minute, it's your weekly community action calendar with all kinds of ideas about how to get involved in making sustainability a reality now. So stay tuned.
right, all right, this is it, my friends. This is your week to take action for sustainability here on Sustainability Now with me, Justin Mogg. Get your calendars out and your pencils sharpened. This is a jam-packed week. First of all, I want to remind everybody to vote early. This is the year to skip the wait chaos and crowds of Election Day. Everybody is welcome to vote early. In-person early voting is available now and continues Monday through Saturday until November 2nd. If you didn't request a mail-in ballot, this is the safest and most secure way to ensure that your vote will be counted and that appropriate physical distancing can be maintained in the pandemic. There are four locations available for voters here in Jefferson County, and again, Monday through Saturday, now through the 2nd, from 8.30 a.m. to 4.30 p.m., and then the same polling locations plus others will be available on Election Day, 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. Jefferson County residents may vote at any of these locations regardless of their precinct, and drop-off boxes for absentee ballots are available at all locations during those voting hours, Monday through Saturday, 8.30 a.m. to 4.30 p.m. And these four locations are the Kentucky Expo Center at 937 Phillips Lane in the Fairgrounds North Wing. Enter through gates 1, 2, or 4. Also, you can vote at the KFC Yum Center downtown in the foyer at Main and 2nd Street. You can also vote at the Kentucky Center for African American Heritage, uh, 1701 West Muhammad Ali Boulevard. And finally, at the Louisville Marriott East in the Commonwealth Ballroom. They're at 1903 Embassy Square Boulevard. Information is available at GoVoteKY.com or for our friends across the river at Vote411.org slash Indiana. And if you run into any problems at the polls or do have questions, you can always call 1-866-OUR-VOTE, O-U-R-VOTE. And if you need free rides to the polls, there are several organizations providing them. The Brianna Taylor Foundation Get Out the Vote campaign is providing free rides to the polls from 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. On Wednesday the 21st, they'll be leaving from the Newburgh Boys and Girls Club at 5020 East Indian Trail. And then again on Saturday the 24th, they'll be leaving from the Greater Friendship Baptist Church in the California neighborhood at 2325 Osage Avenue. And their free rides continue on uh, later in the month. I'll announce this, those later. But again, 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. on Wednesday at the Newburgh Boys and Girls Club and on Saturday at the Greater Friendship Baptist Church in the California neighborhood. And then every Saturday, the Louisville Urban League is hosting a fun protest to power caravan to the polls. Every Saturday at the Louisville Urban League at 16th and Broadway, there'll be food and music starting at 11 a.m. And then the caravan departs at noon every Saturday through Election Day from the Louisville Urban League league at 16th and Broadway. Now, coming up special this week, Tuesday, October 20th at 10 a.m. through 2.30 p.m. online, it'll be the United Nations Day and UN Human Rights Day program on human trafficking and forever chemicals, the PFAS, in recognition of the 75th anniversary of the UN and the 72nd anniversary of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, the UN Association of the U.S. Kentucky Division invites you to a special digital program focused on two of the UN sustainable Sustainable Development Goals. We'll be talking about gender equality on Tuesday, as well as clean water. The program features an 11 a.m. keynote on Kentucky human trafficking law by Allison Taylor, a former executive director of Kentucky's Office of Child Abuse and Human Trafficking Prevention and Prosecution. At 12.15, David James from Louisville Metro Council will be giving uh, an update on human trafficking in Louisville. Uh, at 12.20, Tom Perez, executive director of EPIC, will give a keynote on internets and cybercrimes reducing demand 
land and human trafficking. And then we'll turn to PFAS and the Forever Chemicals at 120 with a couple guests who were on Truth to Power on this station earlier this week. Uh, at 1.20 p.m., we'll hear from Satchel Walton, a journalist, reporter, and author on what's in Louisville's drinking water. Is it time for a change? And then at 1.50, Tina Halbig, uh, the, a former U L medical uh, technology graduate, a microbiologist, virologist, clinical lab specialist, and U L researcher who's now retired, will be speaking on what is in your water, forever chemicals and PFAS in drinking water and the health impacts. Again, you can get more information and links to join on the entire program Tuesday the 20th, 10 a.m. to 2.30 p.m. It's all available at louisville.edu slash sustainability. And on Tuesday the 20th in the evening at 7 p.m., the Greater Louisville Sierra Club invites you to their virtual monthly program on wildflowers and ferns of Red River Gorge and the Great Red River Basin. All are welcome to an exciting presentation by Dan and Judy Dorson, authors of the new book out from University of Kentucky Press, Wildflowers and Ferns of Red River Gorge. This is the first book devoted only to the biodiversity of the gorge and its watershed. The authors introduce the geology and cultural history of the gorge, but they focus on the incredible diversity of flora in this unique ecosystem. Rare and endangered species are highlighted as well as other important but often ignored non-flowering plant groups. Dan Dorson is a wildlife biologist who worked with the U.S. Forest Service specializing in non-game management in the Red River Gorge. He's the author of 10 books, including Wild Yet Tasty, A Guide to Edible Plants of Eastern Kentucky. And Judy Dorson's an author, educator, researcher, field technician, and editor. She's served as Dan's field assistant, primary researcher, and editor, and has co-authored several books with him. You can find the link to register for the Tuesday, October 20th, 7 p.m. talk at louisvillesierraclub.org. Coming up on Wednesday the 21st at 5 p.m. online, it's debunking the myth of colorblindness, how white allies can move from a non-racist mindset to anti-racist action. Please join the Muhammad Ali Center for their next program in their I Am America Racial Justice Virtual Program Series as they explore the myth of colorblindness in America. The panel will examine how the seemingly benevolent idea of not seeing race actually helps perpetuate racism in our society. The panelists for Wednesday at 5 p.m. include Dr. Cedric Powell from the University of Louisville's School of Law, Ryan Simpson, Program Director for the University of Louisville Health Sciences Campus's Office of Diversity and Inclusion, and it's moderated by Rashad Abdur Rahman, Executive Advisor for the Kentucky Department of Behavioral Health. You can learn more and register for this free virtual event on Wednesday at 5 p.m at alicenter.org, A-L-I-Center.org. And on Thursday, the 22nd at noon via Zoom, you can join the Kentucky Solar Energy Society for a webinar on Louisville's 100% resolution. The presenters are Nancy Givens, Sam Avery, and Wallace McMullen of the 100% Renewable Energy Alliance of Louisville. In February this year, the Louisville Metro Council voted in support of a resolution to meet 100% of Louisville's energy needs with renewables. What are the details of the resolution? How did local citizens get it passed? And how will it be implemented? What lessons were learned to help other cities move to 100% renewable energy? We'll join the Kentucky Solar Energy Society for this informative panel. You can find the link to register at kyses.org. 
the Kentucky Solar Energy Society, KYSES.org, for Thursday, October 22nd's noon Zoom webinar. Also coming up on Thursday the 22nd, there are a lot of great things happening this day, and I think you can cram them all in if you have the whole day. There'll be a No Waste Louisville webinar series. Louisville Metro's Waste Management District is continuing its No Waste virtual webinar series to educate residents on recycling, food waste reduction, and reusing and repurposing products. Webinars will be offered every Thursday at 3 p.m. now through November 19th, and you can register and learn more at nowastelouisville.org slash webinar, and that's K-N-O-W wastelouisville.org slash webinars. And the series this Thursday, the 22nd, is on how to recycle right. Always a popular topic you can learn about recycling in Louisville and get your questions answered. Again, this is 3 p.m. on the 22nd. And to register and get more information, go to nowastelouisville.org slash webinars. K-N-O-W wastelouisville.org slash webinars. Also on Thursday the 22nd, but 4 to 7 p.m., it's the National Day of Action March and Rally Against Police Brutality in honor of Breonna Taylor gathering at Injustice Square at 6th and Jefferson at 4 p.m. on Thursday. October 22nd is the National Day of Action Against Police Abuse. We welcome people from all over the world to join us for a grand march through the streets of Louisville, followed by a huge rally with speakers and music from our support and co-sponsors. The October 22nd Coalition to Stop Police Brutality, Repression, and the Criminalization of a Generation has been mobilizing every year since 1996 for a National Day of Protest on the 22nd of October, bringing together those under the gun and those not under the gun as a powerful voice to expose the epidemic of police brutality. More about the national event and links to all local events are available at October 22nd.org. That's October22.org. We have not asked for revenge. We want justice for Breonna Taylor, and too many more have been lost to police brutality and victimized by police violence. The Kentucky Alliance Against Racist and Political Repression was formed to unify across lines of difference to fight racist practices in our judicial system, schools, prisons, jobs, government, and police. And that's why they are hosting Thursday's March and Rally, and it's part of a week of action hosted by the Alliance, which runs through Friday the 23rd, all at Injustice Square Park at 6th and Jefferson. You get more information at facebook.com slash Injustice Square, and I hope to see you out on the streets on Thursday at 4 p.m. Then, in, later in the evening, Thursday the 22nd at 6 p.m., it's Louisville Grows Citizen Forester 101 virtual training. This is a f- exciting. It's the first time they've done this training virtually. You can register and get more information at tinyurl.com slash CFOCT 2020. Through the training, participants learn how to restore and maintain Louisville's urban forest. They're taught basic tree anatomy and physiology, environmental stewardship, tree planting skills, and how to lead other volunteers in proper planting and caring for trees. Training's provided for individuals of all abilities over the age of 12. And you can find more information and the link to register at facebook.com slash Louisville Grows. Again, it's Thursday the 22nd, 6 to 7.30 p.m. The Louisville Grows Citizen Forester 101 Virtual Training. Also Thursday uh, at 7 p.m., it's Emerging Conversations, Community Safety 
for All. L-Surge, Louisville showing up for racial justice, invites you to come listen deeply to the experiences and insights of black and brown community leaders who will reflect on these questions. What are some alternatives to violent policing? Have you seen these alternatives in your personal experience or communities? And how do you envision these or other alternatives being implemented on a broader scale? As we dig into the complex conversations around alternatives to violent policing, it is important to recognize that we are talking about systems. When we say policing, we are talking about numerous militarized entities, including Border Patrol, ICE, and other Homeland Security Forces, county sheriffs, and state police, as well as our local police forces. This is the second of a series of three emerging conversations, and the third will be on November 12th at 7 p.m. You can find the link to register for the Zoom meeting at facebook.com slash Surge Louisville, S-U-R-J Louisville. And again, it's Thursday, 7 p.m. online. Emerging conversations on community safety for all. Finally, let's loop to Friday, October 23rd uh, at 2.30 p.m. online. It's what does equity and smart growth really mean? You can join the Smart Growth Network as Calvin Gladney is president and CEO of the Smart Growth America and a national thought leader on equitable and sustainable community revitalization. And Andre Perry of the Brooking Institution, an author of Know Your Price, Valuing Black Lives and Property in America's Black Cities, will meet in a virtual forum to discuss smart growth past, present, and future. Gladney and Perry will examine the current state of built environments and the policies that have historically affected the lives of people of color and look to the future to explore the potential for positive change. You can find out more and register for this free webinar at smartgrowth.org. Again, it's Friday at 2.30 p.m. Coming up Saturday the 24th, it's the Louisville Earthwalk 2020. The annual Earthwalk is going citywide this year out of respect for everyone's safety during the pandemic. So this year there are two exciting registration options. You can take a 5k walk wherever you want or you can go freeform and celebrate however you like from wherever you are anytime on the 24th simply go to louisvilleearthwalk.org to register make a donation form a team or become a fundraiser all gifts to louisville earthwalk directly support 11 distinct community-based organizations that share a vision where every neighborhood has safe and clean water air and soil collectively we work for comprehensive change that involves personal actions effective policies and the quest for environmental justice. We build skills, incubate new ideas, raise awareness, reduce energy consumption, plant trees, and engage citizens in responses to the climate crisis. The Earthwalk benefits the West Jefferson County Community Task Force, Project Warm, Passionist Earth and Spirit Center, Louisville Sustainability Council, Louisville Grows, Louisville Climate Action Network, Kentucky Interfaith Power and Light, Kentucky Conservation Committee, Kentuckians for the Commonwealth, Greater Louisville Sierra Club, and Cultivating Connections. Wow. You can support them all by making a donation at any level or participating on Saturday. And you can learn more at louisvilleearthwalk.org. Also coming up Saturday the 24th, it'll be the first of the fall Louisville Grows tree planting happening this year, 8 a.m. to noon in Jeffersonville, Indiana. The need for our trees in our city is greater than ever, and Louisville Grows is dedicated to continuing the work with neighborhoods to meet that need. So for the
the first time, Louisville Groves will be planting trees in Indiana. We're partnering with the city of Jeffersonville to plant these trees on property of Indiana residents who live in areas with low tree canopy coverage. And there will be pandemic measures in place, including limited participation. Uh, so if you want to register to participate in Saturday, 8 a.m. to noon in Jeffersonville, Indiana, you can learn more at signupgenius.com. Just search for the organizer volunteer at louisvillegroves.org and you'll find the registration link and there'll also be a planting in the California neighborhood on Saturday, October 31st. So you can sign up for that as well. Also on Saturday the 24th from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m., it's a pop-up drop-off with free recycling at the Louisville Metro Fleet Services out at 3515 Newburgh Road. Pop-up drop-offs are free recycling and large item disposal events for residents of Jefferson County. Accepted items include up to three electronic items to be recycled, metal and appliances. Uh, you can't do any refrigerators or any items containing coolant, but other metal and appliances will be recycled. You can recycle up to four passenger tires. Household recyclables uh, following the regular the curbside rules can be recycled. Yard waste will also be accepted for composting. Documents will be accepted for shredding and recycling and prescription medications will be accepted for proper disposal all Saturday the 24th, 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. at 3515 Newburgh Road. You can get more information at louisvilleky.gov. Also Saturday the 24th from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m., uh, Kentucky Waterways Alliance is calling for volunteers to help out with a Kentucky River cleanup that'll be leaving from Riverview Park Boat Dock in Frankfort, Kentucky at 701 Wilkinson Boulevard. KWA is partnering up with Canoe Kentucky once again to host a cleanup event, but this time on the Kentucky River. Join us as we paddle two and a half miles and remove litter and debris left over from this busy recreation season. Shuttle service and canoes are provided by our generous partners at Canoe Kentucky. They are also looking for power boat owners on the Kentucky River to help haul trash. You can register to help at kwalliance.org. And again, it's Saturday the 24th on the Kentucky River from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. Also Saturday the 4th from 10 a.m. to noon at Jefferson Memorial Forest in Fairdale, there'll be a free fun with fungi class. You can join us in exploring the world of fungi, their structures, means of propagation, ecological importance, and more. We'll take a closer look at mushrooms through a hands-on activity in which we make our own spore prints, an educational song, a virtual tour of a mushroom farm, and a guided mushroom walk around the forest to find different specimens. In addition, we'll also learn the importance of the leave no trace principle of hiking. This is for ages seven and up, and face coverings will be required. It's free Thanks to Prayer Mountain Mushrooms, but pre-registration is required by calling 502-368-5404. And you can get more information at facebook.com slash JMF Natural Areas. Also, Saturday the 24th at noon, it's a unity march and concert. You can join us on the Great Lawn for a peaceful march to Injustice Square at 6 in Jefferson. Afterwards, we're going to celebrate unity and courage with local music, speeches from square leadership, barbecue, and food trucks. The 24th March. Two years since Vicki Lee Jones and Maurice Stollard were senselessly murdered at a Jefferson Town Kroger. Their lives will be honored throughout the day. We're marching to send a message to our communities and the nation that we stand together with black lives. Speakers include Attica Scott, Ashanti Scott, Shamika Parrish Wright, and Sonia DeVries. Food trucks will include Riot Cafe and others. 
is coordinated with the Kentucky Alliance Against Racist and Political Repression and Move Showing Up for Racial Justice. You can learn more about Saturday's Unity March and Concert, which starts at noon on the Great Lawn and moves over to Injustice Square at 6th and Jefferson. You can learn more at Facebook.com slash S-U-R-J Louisville. Also Saturday, October 24th at 7 p.m., all hands on deck for a massive occupation at Attorney General Daniel Cameron's house, 7001 Bedford Lane in Louisville, Kentucky. It's just outside the Waterson off Hare Lane and Westbrook Road. Everyone is encouraged to gather Saturday the 24th at 7 p.m. And finally, Monday the 26th at 6 p.m. at Waterfront Park. It's a Yoga for the Cause class at the Swing Garden in Waterfront Park. You can join us for an hour-long donation-based yoga class in the park with proceeds to benefit a different local charity every month. Get more information at ourwaterfront.org slash events. And that's all the time we have for today here on Sustainability Now. Thanks for tuning in. Stay tuned to Ford Radio. Lots of great stuff coming up, and I'll be back in your ears again in one week's time. Thank you.